Welcome to the Highway Hi-Fi Podcast, where we go track by track through the underbelly of music history, using research and trivia to locate the roots of our obsession with vinyl records. I'm Joe. And I'm Ryan. And congratulations. You found the only place that's not building a podcast, but making a brick. And today we're going to be talking about Brian Eno's oblique strategies. But before we do that, we're going to melt your mind with a little bit of trivia. Oh. I'm going to start today's trivia off with a non-audio quiz. I am not naming this one because, <laughs> I'm, not, not? because I'm not you. <laughs> Come on. What I'm going to do is I'm going to, I'm going to name a seminal album, and I want you to tell me who produced it. Okay. You name the album. I name the producer. Yes. I'm going to name the album. You name the producer. Okay. Okay. Got it? Yes. Okay. Time out of mind. I don't know, Bob Dylan? Did he produce, self-produce? Daniel Lanois. Oh, I was going to say that, but I didn't know how to pronounce you, his name. Okay. I was okay. worried about that. Dan, I, thought he Daniel. Hated, I thought he hated Daniel Lanois. They, do not get, they didn't get along while they were recording that one or Oh Mercy, uh-huh. um, but um, they had a hard time recording Oh Mercy in New Orleans. Really hard time working together, and yet um, it ended up being such a good album that... Bob Dylan went back. That was the first thing that popped to my mind, but I thought they didn't get along by that point. Anyways. Okay, go ahead. Sorry. All right. Are we not men? We are Devo. Oh, producer. Yes. Uh, That would be John Cale. Brian Eno. That would be Brian Eno. Sorry, sorry. Brian Eno. That's all right. Uh, (laughs) Okay. Lou Reed's Transformer. David Bowie. Very good. Bobby Charles' self-titled album. I really should know that. You should. We were talking about it earlier. Um, it's the guy who produced the band records. Gosh, what's his name? Robert? <laughs> <laughs> Robert Rick Danko. <laughs> okay. Rick was Danko. It? No, I thought it was the, uh-uh. the band's producer that produced it. Nope, Rick Danko produced that one. All right. We'll have to research that. Rum Sodomy and the Lash. Uh, Elvis Costello. Very good. The pulp album called We Love Life. That wasn't Scott Walker. It was, yeah. yeah, yeah. Otherwise, I wouldn't. I've never even heard of that album. (laughs) P.J. Harvey's Rid of Me. Nick Cave. Steve Albini. Oh, okay, okay. The Feelies album called The Good Earth. Oh. There's only producers that you're going to know, so. I don't know that one. R.E.M.'s Peter Buck. Oh, okay. That, That makes sense. Yeah. Uh, neutral Milk Hotels in the Airplane Over the Sea. Was it the guy from Apples and Stereo, Ro- Robert? No. Uh, <laughs> Robert Rick Dingo. <laughs> What's his name? He's bald. It is. Robert Schneider. Yeah. See, that's where yeah. that Robert was coming yeah, 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 yeah. 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 That's what okay. you're thinking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's from Denver. He has a good children's record out there, too, by the way. Yeah, he's from Denver, too. Robert Bob. That's why. Yeah. That's, that's actually why I did that one. How about a nice softball to end it? Trout Mask Replica. Uh, Frank Zappa. Very good. Okay, let's do one more then. <laughs> no <laughs> more softballs. Thanks, let's do, jerk. Let's do a really hard one. Okay. Slow Train Coming. Is somebody I've heard of? Yes. And I can give you one hint. This is a tough one. The hint is that it was recorded at Muscle Shoals. Okay. Billy Graham? 
No, Jerry Wexler produced all the oh, Muscle Shoals. Yeah, that's right. Okay, I probably should have got that. Okay. All right. You didn't get me on my finest moment, but that's okay. All right. Um, all right. Well, I have a uh, simple quiz for you. I'm going to do the audio quiz. I got six tracks. You need to tell me the name of the artist, the name of the song, and there's a theme that holds all six of them together. You ready? I am. All right. Here we go. And uh, for those of you who are listening to our podcast the first time, I'm not going to tell you the answers right away. We're going to make you listen all the way through. And then we'll give you the answers at the end. All right. Here we go. Track one. I think I have a better idea of the theme than all of the song titles, but yeah, your your quiz and my quiz kind of hand. <laughs> we didn't plan that ahead of time very well. Anyways, all right. With all the uh, trivial uh, affairs in order, we're going to go ahead and go straight into turntable talk. Everybody is talking at me. I don't hear a word they're saying. Only the echoes of my mind. Today we're going to be talking about oblique strategies, a set of cards that are fairly well known probably by anybody listening to this. Generally people think of it as something Brian Eno would work with as a tool, but I'm going to go through kind of the history of them, what, how they came to be, um, who has used them on what albums and stuff like that. So I'm going to start with actually Brian Eno's partner with these cards named Peter Schmidt. He was born in Berlin, moved to London with his mother when he was seven years old, and by the age of 16, he'd begun painting, studying at art schools, winning scholarships, and in 1961, the BBC even produced a film about him. Until that point, Schmidt had been mostly working in realism, but around 1963, that all changed, and he became an abstract artist, and by 1966, he was combining art and music together and was focused on presenting ideas through mixed media. He called his style at that point program. It was something that nobody else had been doing, at least as far as he knew and anybody else had no, been seeing. He continued producing music and art shows through the 60s and into the 70s while also teaching at the Watford College of Art. 
and as a visiting lecturer at Ipswich Art School in the late 60s, he met and befriended a student there by the name of Brian Peter George St. John Le Baptiste de la Salle Eno. <laughs> That's his <laughs> real name. In, 19, in 1970, Peter Schmidt created a work of art called The Thoughts Behind the Thoughts. This is a fairly well-known, um, in the art world, a very well-known piece. It's a series of 55 cards combining prints of his own work along with phrases that he wrote designed to lead to creative thought. The idea was to find a way to shake up and disrupt creative thought, which would lead, ideally, to new creations and unblock the mind. The cards were given to friends and family, and two of those friends were Robert Wyatt and Brian Eno. Schmidt had been keeping these phrases in his own journal as reminders of what would keep him away from paths he'd already gone down. Eno, upon getting these, seemed particularly taken aback by the project as it was so very similar to an idea he'd been working on himself. Eno had also been keeping phrases that would disrupt his train of thought, and he called them oblique strategies. By this point, Eno had joined Roxy Music and was using these cards for music to remove the panic often felt in studios. They have a, they're really expensive, they are under time constraints, people start freaking out. So he created these to kind of get people out of that panic mode and to move them towards new ways of releasing creative work. The similarity went beyond just the idea of that artistic disruption. Many of the ideas they used were nearly identical. The main idea that started the process for both of them and what became card number one was honor thy error as a hidden intention. The thy in there I assume is all Eno. Though he says what he first wrote down was actually was it really a mistake which makes a lot more sense. Eno and Schmidt began combining these phrases into not just music or art ideas, but creative jolts for artists. At first, they had a list of phrases, but that was a failure. Uh, when you put the list of phrases in front of somebody, their eyes always wander to what is easiest, and it just didn't work. It was, a, it was a complete failure. Oblique Strategies, subtitled Over 100 Worthwhile Dilemmas, was finally first published by Brian and Peter in 1975. That first edition was, was 500 sets of boxes with 113 cards in each. These became very popular, so an additional revised set was published in 78, and then a third set in 79. Each set is slightly different than the previous. Updates are, ma updates are made, cards are added, cards are removed, uh, new ones come in. It's, uh, it changes a little bit with all three of those. Each edition of the cards begins with the same set of instructions from Schmidt and Eno. These instructions read, These cards evolve from our separate observations on the principles underlying what we were doing. Sometimes they were recognized in retrospect, intellect catching up with intuition. Sometimes they were identified as they were happening. Sometimes they were formulated. They can be used as a pack, a set of possibilities being continuously reviewed in the mind, or by drawing a single card from the shuffled pack when a dilemma occurs in a working situation. In this case, the card is trusted even if its appropriateness is quite unclear. They are not final, as new ideas will present themselves and as others will become self-evident. In 1980, Peter Schmidt died having a heart attack while he's on vacation, and it was another 16 years before a set was made again. The fourth set, at that point, wasn't available for sale to the public at all. This set was made for Peter Norton, the computer guy, who had this set made with Eno's blessing as a Christmas present. So the fourth set, Eno went through and updated it. 
changed things around like he had been doing when he was collaborating with Schmidt and had a few guests like poets and philosophers also submit their own cards. But these were only for friends of Peter Norton as Christmas presents. The antivirus guy? Yeah. Okay. Yep. Uh, Eno finally produced a fifth version to sell to the public in 2001, um, also updated extensively um, and still available online for about 60 bucks. And another set was released in 2013, but it was a limited edition set um, and it's completely sold out. It was like a different color, so it was basically his colored vinyl uh, version. Each deck also has a few blank cards, so you can add your own ideas into the mix at any point if you want to, if you think you're up to it. Uh, the cards are most famous for being used on albums that Eno created and produced, and most famously for their extensive use on David Bowie's Berlin trilogy of Low Heroes and Lodger. The song Heroes is said to have benefited greatly from these cards. According to Tony Visconti, a card led to putting a microphone in the middle of the studio, one at the end of the studio, and one directly in front of David Bowie. The result is the sound of Bowie's scream at the culmination of the song Heroes, a sound that could not have been captured any other way. The cards are also used in Richard Linklater's movie Slacker quite a bit. The best card used, though, in that movie actually isn't a real card, and it's um, in the movie somebody picks up one of the cards, or I think she hands somebody a card, and it says... Withdrawing in disgust is not the same thing as apathy, which is a great quote, but not a real card. Blixabargeld of Einsterzunde Neubotten, Neubotten, I believe, um, and bad and the Bad Seeds allegedly has his own similar creation that he calls Dave, but I haven't found any evidence of that online. It was just something I heard something I heard in one of these in one of these uh, articles. You two, when they were recording Joshua Tree with with Eno, uh, they wouldn't use them. <laughs> they wouldn't use him at all. Uh, they, I think they did Octum Baby with him too. They didn't, they just, they are one of the few that wouldn't do it. Devo didn't like them, with Jerry Casale saying, Devo being the smart-ass intellectuals that we were, we thought the oblique strategies were pretty wanky. They were too zen for us. We thought that precious pseudo-mystical elliptical stuff was too groovy. We were into brute nasty realism and industrial strength sounds and beats. We didn't want pretty. Brian was trying to add beauty to our music. A longtime guitar player of Bowie's, Carlos Alomar, was very frustrated with the cards during the Berlin Trilogy recordings. When recording, based on a card, Alomar was moved to drums. And he went up to Eno and said, quote, This experiment is stupid. <laughs> Once the albums were complete and he heard how important the cards had been in all the performances... He liked the cards, and since he's become a disciple, he's even a teacher now at an art school and uses the cards with his students, teaching them how to how to use this different type of thinking. During those same recordings, uh, recordings, Adrian Ballou, another guitarist um, who was just shown up, who had just shown up at those same sessions where Alomar sitting in on drums, he didn't know what was happening. He barely had barely even arrived when he was told to start playing in response to a song that he'd never heard. Before he could even ask why Alomar was on the drums, Baloo was told that Alomar would go one, two, three, and then you'd come in. And Baloo asked, what key is it? And, they, and he was told, don't worry about the key, just play. Baloo said, it was like a freight train coming through my mind. I just had to cling on. That experiment resulted in Boys Keep Swinging. And Baloo is known as having one of the greatest guitar songs, or guitar recordings in that song. Phil Collins, who was part of the recordings for 
two or three of Eno's first four solo albums. Um, he was a drummer on, on a lot of those. And while recording Another Green World, he got so frustrated that he started throwing beer cans around the room and at Eno, uh, which probably led Eno to know that he shouldn't fuck with a guy who can sing and drum at the same time. <laughs> the frustration that Phil Collins showed is an intended result of the cards. Disruption is what the cards are for. Musicians and artists in general are often anxious about always staying at the forefront of being relevant, but when ideas aren't flowing, panic can set in. These cards force lateral thinking, which is a way to force yourself out of using traditional step-by-step -step logic, or what is called vertical logic, and think in new ways, a way to deliberately break from patterns. When processes become too predictable and comfortable, something needs to be there to change that. Doing this doesn't always work, Eno certainly admits that. He said that what is completed by using the cards is rarely a success, but it almost always leads to what becomes a success. It isn't always the anxiety caused from complacency and self-doubt that needs new solutions either. The pressures, as I mentioned earlier, of time also require immediate help. Studio time is really expensive, and if things aren't being done quickly enough, panic will set in. And the cards help with that. They helped with Roxy Music's first album. Uh, that's when you know first used them in the studio. Basically, the point is humans perform best when under pressure, and these cards, when added to panic, place new pressure on artists, uh, and they per just perform better in general. As poet Simon Armitage said of the cards, the effect of the cards is, it, is as if you're asking the blood in your brain to flow backwards. This is basically the idea behind what is called lateral thinking, which is a term that was coined in 1967 by Edward Devano, not long before Schmidt and then Eno began forming similar problem-solving strategies for themselves. It seems the idea of moving sideways to find solutions came from many sources at around the same period of time. Devano wasn't focused on the creative mind, but was using this as an approach that went against critical thinking. Based on his reputation, it is safe to say that both Schmidt and Eno were well aware of Devano. I think he won the Da Vinci Award. Um, he was uh, a huge, he had a huge brain. The cards are still in use today. For many, of the, for many of the albums Eno produces, including Coldplay's, as mentioned earlier, the cards aren't always a success. <laughs> the cards have also been co-opted by others outside of the creative world. It didn't take too long for fake cards to see daylight as team-building exercises at business outings. The nature of the original cards works in many areas, though some of the co-opting has turned them into what they believe to be recipes for success. This is something they absolutely were not intended to be. The intent is to try something new and to think in previously unknown ways. The cards don't care if you succeed or if you fail. That has no bearing on anything that they're trying to do. Acquiring any of the first three editions that were made, those were 75, 78, and 79, is very difficult, very, very expensive. Um, and the ones that Peter Norton basically commissioned don't even bother. They're thousands and thousands of dollars if you can even find someone who's willing to part with them. There have been very few that have ever hit the market. You are, as I mentioned at the very beginning, you are now able to actually get a, a set of these cards. They're on Brian Eno's website. They come in a black box. Um, they have one side of each card is black. The other side in very small, I think it's 10-point font, has the, the aphorism on it. You can get those. I think they're shipped to America. I think it's going to cost you about 60 bucks.
And if that's not what you want, you can also find free oblique strategy generators online. There are many of them. And most of them use the actual words or phrases from the cards. Or you can download the app, and there are a few different apps too. There's an official one that Brian Eno sanctioned, and then there are some knockoffs as well. Of the real editions, some of the ones that I thought were were especially clever, um, not counting the Richard Linklater one, I like the one uh, Change Instrument Rolls, which worked really well for Alomar there. Cut a Vital Connection is another good one. Don't be afraid of things because they're easy to do. Look closely at the most embarrassing details and amplify them. Make a sudden, destructive, unpredictable action and incorporate. The, this is probably my favorite is twist the spine. Doesn't say <laughs> whose. Use unqualified people. Work at a different speed. Decorate, decorate. Disciplined self-indulgence. Use an old idea. And then the, the last one I had on here that I was that I was kind of taken with was Go to an extreme and come partway back. That's the history of the Oblique Strategy cards. If you guys had heard about them or maybe some of you knew a lot more about them than we did. I didn't. I knew of them and obviously I knew about Eno and the Berlin Trilogy, but I didn't really know anything about Peter Schmidt before this. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because it's, you know, I work in a job where I ask people to get out of their mindset, their thinking. And I've even since we talked about this, started talking about this and I kind of read through some of them, you know, you can kind of use some of them and you may have to rephrase it differently. You may have to kind of make suggestions, but I think the idea is the same is if you keep thinking the same way, you're going to get the same results, whether you're in the studio or in life, you know, and some of them are just, they're interesting because, you know, you have to really go outside your comfort zone to, to deal with them. And, you know, I, I, I was thinking about some of my favorite ones. Of course, Honor Thy Air as a hidden intention, that first one is, is great. I mean, I think, you know, if you think about that, maybe maybe instead of thinking it was a mistake, think of it as what you really wanted is a good way to do it. And the one I kind of alluded to at the beginning, which is uh, not building a wall, but creating a brick, if you kind of take take a smaller piece of the whole. But but they're they're really cool. I mean, they're really cool, and I think they have a lot of applications in everyday life. Yeah, I would love to get a set. Um, I think that would be great. But I don't know if I would actually end up using them. Yeah, I don't know if I would either. But even just, it'd be be neat to have them as, as some sort of decoration. I read about somebody who posts them on the wall just as kind of a... Oh, nice. That's good. Decoration. And I think even as an experiment, I tried to use one every day. And I didn't. But I also don't think that that's what they're intended to be. They're intended to be used at specific in specific situations. And I was not using them correctly. Another funny thing that I learned today when we were talking about that is I always thought REM used one, but they turned out to use the fake one. And uh, what's the frequency, Kenneth? They say the uh, withdrawing and dust, withdrawing in disgust is not the same as apathy. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the ways I'd heard about it. But then I, I found out today that was just a big, big Richard, ruse. I think that's. I think Richard Linklater wrote that. I don't have any proof of that, but I know really that cool. that was not in any of the four editions. Like you said, it's really great, but it's just yeah, not yeah, an official oh, one, yeah. I, think it's wonderful. I don't know if it would help in a creative situation necessarily, but I don't know if most of, many of these might not right now to me, if not being in that situation, maybe they would, depending on what you are. And if you were creative. Sometimes I withdraw and disgust. Yeah. <laughs> it helps out a lot. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Sometimes I'm apathetic. <laughs> Very good. All right. Well, thank you so much for that. That was really cool. And uh, I guess it's time for a few songs. I'm in love.
Okay, I am going to start today's songs, and the first song I have is called Never Want to Dream Again, There in the Garden, by a fella named Billy Storm. The 1964 single, Never Want to Dream Again, parentheses, There in the Garden, by a fellow named Billy Storm. That was put out by Loma Records. Now, Loma Records was set up by Warner Brothers to cash in on the growing lucrative market uh, for 45s, especially dance 45s. They wanted to get a piece of the uh, rapidly expanding keen sector and sensational need for the 7-inch single format. Featuring increasingly popular R&B and soul sounds that were tearing up the charts and making lots of monies. They picked a weird first one to start. Like I said, this is Loma's first 45, and they released it in October of, of 64. It was by Billy Storm. He'd had a career prior to releasing the single, and he had some decent songs. He was kind of a Sammy Davis Jr.-esque singer, and he was kind of all around... Uh, entertainer and released stuff on Columbia and Atlantic before. But for whatever reason, in this song, and you probably just heard it, they turned the oscillating effect way up on the backing vocal tracks. So it, it gives the song this strange, unsteady sound. It's equally as unnerving as it is catchy, which is why I love the song and why I played it for you all. It's just kind of like the record engineer just turned all the knobs opposite of what you think it should be (laughs) and so it all sounds kind of muddled and underwater but it makes it really interesting and fun and and beyond uh just uh what a normal soul song uh, from that time sounds like it's a barn burner you know it's it's got the it's got a great dancing beat and everything's fun about it but it's just 
stands out, in my opinion. So, interesting side note is that Chip Taylor was the co-writer of the song. He would later to uh, go on to write Wild Thing and Angel of Mourning. And, beyond that, he was the brother of John Voight. Which means, he was the uncle of Angelina Jolie. So he's got that going for him. So... Angelina Jolie. So she, she has that going for her. Really. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a family affair. Um, anyways, I have this on a 4LP retrospective of Loma Records uh, called A Soul Music Love Affair. It's on the, the fourth volume. Just a great fun song. It's a weird soul song. Very good. My Both of my songs, actually. I'm, uh, my, I've got the next two. Should have been played last in the last episode when Ryan did the contract obligations story. The first of these I'm going to go ahead and play right now is by a band called Tartan Horde, and it's called Bay City Rollers. We love you.
All right, that was Tartan Horde with a song called Bay City Rollers, We Love You. You may recognize the voice. That's Nick Lowe. He recorded that in 1975, and it was released on United Artists. The reason I mentioned that this should have been brought up in the last episode is that after Nick Lowe's band, Brinsley Schwartz, broke up, United Artists wanted to lock their main songwriter, Lowe, up into a solo contract, and he wanted to move to Stiff Records like his friends The Damned and Elvis Costello. He was still under contract and thought that he could get United Artists to look elsewhere if he submitted garbage, basically. So he wrote a fanboy song about the most popular band in the world at the time, the Bay City Rollers. Unfortunately, United Artists liked the song and gave it worldwide release. The single tanked in every everywhere except in Japan. <laughs> United Artists asked him, though, to make another one, and he obliged and turned in a song called Rollers Show. That song finally got him out of the contract. <laughs> UA dumped him after that, and he was finally able, able to move over to Stiff Records, and that song ended up on his first solo album. The song Bay City Rollers We Love You was recorded by a fake band, Tartan Horde. There's no information that I can find anywhere about who was actually in the band, though there's a picture of them, and it's clearly rat scabies in the band with Lowe. Like, <laughs> there isn't anybody else that looks like that. Uh, the author of the band, or the author, the author of the song, the guy uh, listed as the writer, is Nick, not Nick Lowe, but his a pen name that he used called Terry Modern. The next song I'm going to play is a Brian Eno song. Um, it's by Brian Eno and the Winkies, and it's a cover of Fever. a new thing. 
fever started long ago Everybody's got the fever That is something we all know Fever isn't such a new thing Fever started long ago Okay, that was Brian Eno and the Winkies with their song Fever from 1975 on Muzak Records. It's a B-side of Babies on Fire. The Winkies were a Canadian band that Eno used as the backing band for his first and only tour, a uh, solo tour, in 1974. The tour ended after six shows. <laughs> so at that point, Eno suffered a collapsed lung. This version, I believe, is from the John Peel Sessions 19, from 1974. Now, Fever, as anyone out there who knows me, both of you, knows this is one, Fever is one of my favorite two, one of my two favorite songs of all time. Um, and my preferred version is the Little Willie John version from 1956, uh, the first recorded version, and that's who the songwriters wrote it for. 
Um, and I kind of got off on a little side note, a tangent on this. There's not much more about the emo one. So <laughs> <laughs> the song was written specifically for Little Willie John. I don't have enough to do a whole turntable talk on it, but I wanted this, this some really good stuff about it. Uh, the song was written for Little Willie John, and it was written by two guys, Eddie Cooley and Otis Blackwell. Otis Blackwell went on to write Great Balls of Fire, Breathless, Don't Be Cruel, All Shook Up, and Return to Sender, and made a few hundred more. Those are the, some of the big ones. Further, as, a, as another callback to that last episode, Blackwell went by a whiter-sounding name of John Davenport when he was going through a contract dispute <laughs> with his publishing company. Apparently, Blackwell also had a superstition at some point during his career about not ever meeting Elvis Presley. He'd written a few hits for Elvis. They had mutual respect, um, and he thought that his luck was basically based on, well, I haven't met him yet, and it's all working out really well. Colonel Parker asked him if he wanted to be have a have a bit part in the movie Girls, 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 but he declined because of that. The Eno version of Fever, though often ridiculed, is up there really high on my list of favorite versions. Um, in my opinion, it's kind of hard to make a bad version. But those are my two songs for today. I've got two comments about your songs. Okay. One is the Tartan Horde song. So good. If I it's, were to make, there was a long in in the early two thousands. I made a uh, a mixtape of the catchiest songs in the whole world. And if I were to remake that now, um, this would be on there. And uh, Michael and the uh, Slipper Tree. Yeah, that would that, be on there. I can't get those out of my head. At some point, we're gonna have to. One of us is gonna have to cave and buy that so we can play it on the show. My second thought is, did the Colonel hire all the people for the movies? I don't know how... He seemed like he could do anything he wanted. Like, he just supplied all the chicken. They all loved it. <laughs> Wrong colonel. What? Huh? <laughs> all right. I'm going to go into my second <laughs> song. All right. My second song is a, a hobo anthem. It's called Street People. It's by a guy named Bobby Charles. Street 
marching from town to town. That came out on a self-titled album in 1972 on Bearsville Records. It's been reissued a few times, most recently in 2014 by... Who produced that record? I'm glad you asked, Joe. (laughs) Uh, We we did have to take a time out in podcast (laughs) land and and kind of settle this this, uh, debate. Joe and I were both right. It was co-produced by Rick Danko, (laughs) Mr... uh, Robert Rick Danko. And uh, also uh, the band's producer, uh, John Simon. So we were both right on that, even though I didn't know John Simon's name. Uh, it's the lead-off track off the uh, the Eponymous first album. And, and like I said, it's a hobo anthem in the tradition of King of the Road or Big Rock Candy Mountain. It's kind of lackadaisical and sweet, but it's also kind of hard-lucked. And it's got an amazing bass line, and it, the... Song kind of meanders and skips along, and it's a, just kind of a perfect example of why Bobby Charles is considered this pioneer in what's called swamp pop. He was uh, ethnic Cajun, born in Louisiana, and he spent his youth writing songs for Bill Haley and Fats Domino and Clarence Frogman, Hen- uh, Clarence Frogman Henry. So in '72, he hooked up with the band, primarily Rick Danko, and their producer John Simon, to release the self-titled album. The album, he's basically backed by the band, besides Robbie Robertson. Rick Danko, Levon Helm, Garth Hudson, Richard Manuel all are uh, on it. He had Neil Young, sidekick Ben Keith, Bob Dylan's buddy, Bob Newworth, uh, session man Amos Garrett, and of course, New Orleans Keys uh, keyboard voodoo master, Dr. John. The thing about this album is it's, it's not an overplayed album. It, it, it's perfect. It's not like this all-star album. They all kind of stay in their lane and just make this perfect complimentary album to, to Bobby Charles' vocals and kind of laid-back style. And it's an interesting mix. It's kind of a mix of singer-songwriter and New Orleans and R&B and country and blue-eyed soul. It's kind of hard to explain, but 
it's as good as many of the roots rock albums that get pushed so much in the 70s but it's almost completely overlooked i think it's just a true americana uh, just just a great record that song especially street people is a fantastic song yeah i love it. that whole album is is great yep all right i guess what we have left to do is answer some questions or give some give some answers to the audio trivia but first we're going to play them again for uh, all you good people out there listening so here we go track one together but what i need is the name of the artist and the song and the theme if you can get it all right what you got okay okay uh track one is nick drake and i thought it was hazy jane but i'm not positive hazy jane part two hazy jane part two very good and the album is off um his best of (laughs) i'm sure it's on there (laughs) uh is it on five leaves left no brighter later okay Okay. one one of three okay uh, the second song, Stooges. Yes. 1969. Very good. The third song is Modern Lovers. That's right. Government Center. Right. And both those songs were off their self-titled album, Stooges mm-hmm. and the Modern Lovers, respectively. Okay. The next one is Nico. Okay. Uh, from her Desert Shore album. That's right. I don't know, don't remember the name of the song. Something Who? about it. I don't remember the name of the Who song. Who is the person that cleans up the madness? The janitor of lunacy. Oh. <laughs> okay. But they're not very good. The fourth one I don't remember at all. I can't place it. It sounds like New York Dolls, but I can't place it. It's not New York Dolls. It's the Happy Mondays, and the song is 24-Hour Party People. Oh, okay. Okay. That's off an album called Squirrel and G-Men, 24-Hour Party People, Plastic Face, Can't Smile, Whiteout. Okay. All right, last song. Patti Smith. Very good. Off of Horses, and I don't remember the title of the song. Kimberly. Kimberly. Man, that's what I was trying to lead myself to, and I couldn't get there. All right, and... You've kind of already alluded to this, but what is the theme of these six songs? All of these songs are from albums produced by John Cale. That is correct. They are all from albums produced by John Cale. And that was just kind of a coincidence that we were yeah, talking about and I, stuff like that. But it, 
Worked I've made, well. I, I think in the past, I've made mixtapes where one side would be all songs produced by John Cale and one side would be all songs produced by Eno. If you pull their collective uh, production, made some pretty great stuff. They've been a part of a lot of really good stuff. I mean, we already talked about Coldplay. <laughs> we did talk about Coldplay. All right. <laughs> Coldplay. All right. Anyways. As usual, please go out and support uh, musicians and music and record stores. Go buy a record. Joe and I are planning on, we're actually hanging out together. So we're going to plan on checking out a few record stores here in the next few days and and uh, buying some records and hopefully some, some records that we'll get to play for you. And Joe, what do you got for social media? We, um, we would love it if you went onto iTunes and gave us a, a decent rating. That would really help a lot. We do have more people listening, it, it seems. Um, <laughs> it appears that way, at least. Uh, give us a rating on iTunes if you can. Follow us on Twitter. We have a lot of conversations on there with people. It's a, it's a lot of fun. And we have a Facebook page that we do update quite a bit. You can also email us at podcast at gmail.com. Uh, we would love to hear from you if you have any ideas for any shows. If you want to volunteer your own time in research and do one of the shows, absolutely. You know, we would love to have a guest guest speaker. We want to get we want to get Chris Brown on here. We have a guest speaker coming. Uh, we're going to record another one pretty soon yep. with one of our with somebody who's who's going to be amazing. And that's that's the social media I have here for you. Very good, very good. And we appreciate you listening. Uh, if you've made it this far, yeah. Do you have an oblique strategy for somebody to out there to try? Twist your spine. Twist your spine. Or or the spine of someone close to you. <laughs> or twist a different part of your body. <laughs> uh, <man. laughs> All right. We'll see you next time. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.